Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleiman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. For over a century, the global energy system has been dominated by fossil fuels, and governments and industry have gone to great lengths to secure reliable supplies of oil, natural gas, and coal. All along, scarcity and competition over fossil resources has been fuel for geopolitical conflict and a root cause of energy insecurity when access to resources appears threatened or limited. Yet as the world shifts today toward clean energy technologies, certain minerals like cobalt and lithium and exotic-sounding rare earth metals like neodymium increasingly replace fossil fuels as the basis of our energy system. Accordingly, where governments once sought to gain secure supply of fossil fuels, energy security in the future will depend on access to dozens of critical minerals needed for an increasingly electrified and carbon-free energy system. On today's podcast, we're going to explore the criticality of minerals to our rapidly transitioning energy system. We'll look at the myriad challenges that come with our dependence on resources that are by and large produced outside of the United States and, in notable cases, by countries with which the U.S. has strained diplomatic ties. My guest is Brian Minnell, a minerals industry executive whose companies are working to develop alternative supply chains for energy metals and which have received significant financing from the U.S. government. Brian will discuss the challenges involved in developing new sources of supply and provide his assessment of the prospects for scaling the production of key minerals to support the pace of decarbonization. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. It's good to be with you. And as I understand, you are a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. Is that correct? I am. I graduated in 88. Well, it's great to have you back, even if it's virtually today. So the U.S. government, through its International Development Finance Corporation, is a substantial investor in TechMet, which is the mining sector company that you lead. Could you start us out by introducing the company and why it has attracted federal investment? Sure. TechMed is a private investment holding company domiciled in Ireland that invests largely equity in private projects and private companies across the middle portion of the value chain. So distributed approximately evenly across primary production, processing and refining and recycling um, of the metals where we see the most severe supply demand dislocation between inefficient scalability of supply and exponential growth in demand driven by the energy transition more broadly, but more specifically by the EV rollout globally and by renewable energy systems. So we do focus exclusively on lithium, cobalt and nickel for rare lithium ion batteries, rare earth metals for permanent magnets for obviously electric motors and wind turbines, vanadium for vanadium redox flow batteries, tin for everything, and tungsten. And, and we focus exclusively on projects, late-stage development or expansion of existing production across South America, North America, Europe, and Africa. Why we came to the attention of, of U.S. government funding agencies and were the recipient of the DFC, the International Development Finance Corporation's first equity investment ever in 2020 when they first invested in TechMet, and they've since then further invested last year in our most recent equity round and have a further um, $80 million authority to invest 
to do more equity, which they want to execute over the next year. And the reason was simple. I mean, at that time in 2020, we were three years old. We'd already established a very attractive portfolio of projects that we were funding and developing. The realization across a range of government agencies in Washington that we were at the beginning of really a very severe structural short supply of these critical minerals and that all of them were dominated by China uh, across the global supply chain. China having had a free reign for 15 years to build this dominant position while everybody else was sleeping and the realization not only of the enormity of this challenge here politically vis-a-vis China and structurally in terms of adequately supplying climate change mitigation obviously led to them focusing on us because we are high ESG, we're very well governed and transparent, and we are completely free of Chinese investment or significant partnerships or counterparties and have been since our inception. And that's very, very unusual in our industry. So the transition to clean energy shifts the focus of energy supply and security concerns from fossils to minerals. And and this really is a paradigm shift, which is getting underway. Could you broadly comment on the nature of this shifting focus? And I guess more specifically, talk about the implications for energy security. Yeah, I mean, one can't exaggerate the scale and significance of the implications of this shift. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say we're at an inflection point in our transformation from a world that for the last couple of hundred years has been one where the global industrial infrastructure has been fed by fossil fuels to one in which the global industrial infrastructure is going to be fed by specialty metals going into clean energy and clean industry technologies. And that shift is obviously not going to be quick. It's going to be a 30-year transition, but it's a 30-year transition that has enormous implications. And one of the implications is The fact that the supply-demand dislocation for these critical minerals is more severe than any other structural shortage of a mined material since the impact of demand for coal and iron ore in the 1790s and early 19th century as the Industrial Revolution progressed. So it really is epic. So that's the one broad picture reality that we all have to understand is now unstoppable and inevitable. There are two big problems inherent in that shift. One is our industry and the markets have radically failed the world to transform the production and processing and recycling of metals and minerals to meet the exponential growth and demand that is accelerating. You know, we needed as an industry deploy $100 billion dollars three or four or five years ago to avoid the now largely inescapable cliff of undersupply that we're heading towards over the next three or four years. You know, unfortunately, it takes eight to 15 years to build a mine and only two or three years to build a battery gigafactory. So that's the one stark reality that has created a gap that at the moment is still widening and we have to do everything we can to narrow that gap if we're going to not radically retard the energy transition and climate change mitigation. The other dimension is obviously, as we've touched on a little bit earlier, is the fact that while everybody was sleeping, China won a war that nobody knew they were fighting until they lost it. 
for control of these global supply chains, both in terms of primary resource and processing capacity to produce metal chemicals to go into energy transition technologies. And that's got massive geopolitical and national security implications quite clearly. I want to take a moment here just to emphasize how the volumes of these minerals, the amounts of these minerals that will be necessary per the International Energy Agency, by the year 2040, growing demand for EVs and battery storage will lead to 40 times greater demand for lithium for those markets for, for batteries, and 25 times greater demand for graphite, cobalt, and nickel. Copper demand for transmission lines will double you just mentioned that we've got two challenges here. One is to simply develop more supply and very quickly. And the second is to make sure that supply is reliable and safe from geopolitical disruption. I'd like to, to dive a little bit more deeply on this one. In your view, how vulnerable is the U.S. and its trade allies to critical mineral supply disruption based upon the concentration, particularly of processing in China and in other parts of the value chain that you see right now? There's no question that's U.S. industry in the United States as a whole, as is the case in Europe and India and Japan and Korea, is enormously vulnerable to China's dominant position because they're not going to fail to use their dominant position. It's cost them hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, and it's acquired and been allowed to acquire tools that are very powerful in two ways. One is to advantage their domestic industry relative to those industries in the U.S. and elsewhere. And their objective is clearly to sell electric vehicles to the world, not to sell lithium hydroxide to the world. And they will do that. And the other is to use it as a tool or a weapon in any escalation of a new Cold War environment, diplomatically or otherwise, on the global geopolitical stage, which, again, is a reality um, that will persist and have many ups and downs for the remainder of our lifetimes. So, you know, there's enormous vulnerability and the scale of the, the challenges in reducing that vulnerability in the face of what you've mentioned of this, the, the quantum leaps in supply that we need to feed this transformation. I mean, if we use Tesla as an illustrator, you know, if Tesla are to reach their target of 20 million electric vehicles a year in 2030, that's only seven years away. That alone would require almost seven times the present total global supply of lithium. And that's Tesla. That's before GM and Ford and VW and the Chinese continue to produce and, you know, two-thirds of the world's lithium-ion batteries and two-thirds of the world's electric vehicles and are growing quicker than us and are going to increasingly struggle to supply their own EV ecosystem, let alone continue to support the Teslas of this world who today are totally dependent on supply of inputs from China to move the needle on that, which obviously there's an enormous amount of focus and effort being devoted towards doing, you know, most notably the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, is a really tough multi-year task, you know, to dislodge China's position in parallel with scaling overall global supply and doing it with high ESG standards and low carbon footprint as a western orientated energy transition demands is a 10 20 year job and hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars and we're scratching the surface of what needs to be done in order to successfully execute on that over the next decade in alignment with u.s interests 
and the interests of U.S. economic allies, which is what we as TechNet are dedicated to be a part of. Could you tell us what are the reasons for the historic underinvestment in the U.S. into critical minerals? It's quite simple. It's been a lot easier to export the requirements to fund and environmentally license and build and manage projects the Chinese. You know, if you're Tesla and you needed X tons of nickel for nickel sulfate and cobalt sulfate and lithium hydroxide to go into your battery cells, the Chinese were, having done what they've done over the last 15, 20 years, were willing and able to supply you very, very competitively, much more competitively than you were able to supply yourself or anybody else building capacity in the U.S. or in alignment with U.S. interests was able to do. And that's for obvious reasons. The Chinese have been doing it with plentiful and largely free state money. They've been doing it with much lower environmental licensing requirements for domestic cited processing. They've been doing it with massive economies of scale, which are difficult to duplicate, having been building capacity while everybody else was doing nothing. And therefore, today, it's incredibly difficult to compete in order to balance that Chinese position for all of those reasons. And it can only happen with massive government intervention, which we're starting to see, because that is the realization left to the market. You know, we're going to continue to fail, both in terms of climate change mitigation and in terms of U.S. industrial competitiveness, jobs, and national security. It's interesting because you just pointed out that a lot of the reasons for the U.S. supply chain for critical minerals to not be developed past a certain point was because the economics and regulatory construct outside of the United States made development of those industries relatively easier. I just want to take a step back to one thing that you you mentioned a few minutes ago. You know, we focused a lot here on geopolitical tension being a driver of insecurity for these mineral supply chains. But there also, you mentioned briefly, and I want to go back to that, the economic reasons that China might want to control all of these resources and not provide those resources to other countries when supplies may be limited. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, if Europe is to meet their 30, 40, 50% EV penetration targets over the next 10 years. There is no way that is achievable without importing 50 or 60 or more percentage of those EVs. And that's China's plan. I think the US will do a better job of protecting US industry from that economic reality, but Europe may well not. And that is a clear objective of Chinese manufacturers and the Chinese state. And it's quite a realistic one and a reasonable one, given what they've invested and done to create supply chains and create the industrial capacity and technologies that they've done over the last decade. So I want to note that the US and the EU are not seeking to achieve self-sufficiency here in terms of their critical mineral supply. The goal is diversification of supply among countries with which these countries have trade agreements. You know, and this really gets to the root of, of what your companies do. You, you're focusing on developing these alternative sources of critical minerals and rare earths. Where are the notable new supplies located 
as well as the processing opportunities? That is what we do. I mean, we're building high ESG compliant, low carbon footprint production and processing and recycling across these key metals in alignment with US interests. And we're doing that in, in different ways in different places that are relevant to different metals. So there's a diversity of different drivers of what will create that independent US aligned supply globally. Because as you say, the answer is not localization. The answer is controlled or at least friendly supply chains that are not in the hands of one strategic adversaries. So lithium is a somewhat of an outlier amongst our metals in the sense that there's a lot of lithium in the world. So the issue is not the structural short supply of primary resource. The issue is the economics of and process technologies and environmental impacts of scaling supply. In my view, a lot of growth in supply of lithium to fill this gap that is widening is going to be from direct lithium extraction from both cold brines and geothermal hot brines. Um, and we're very engaged as the primary financier of energy source minerals, which is pioneering direct lithium extraction from deep hot geothermal brines in the Salton Sea in California and uh, more benign and cooler brines in Utah and Texas and Arkansas and Argentina. Um, we're also busy with brine-based lithium production in Cornwall and hard rock lithium production. So in our view, while lithium production globally will continue to be dominated over the next four or five years by hard rocks, volume-based lithium production out of Australia and a few emergent productions in Africa and the production from the big salar salt brine lakes, um, with evaporation pond systems that are presently deployed in, in Chile and Argentina. But this DLE from brines will be a major driver in growth and demand, and we are obviously very involved in that and committed to playing a, a hopefully a significant role in, in scaling some of these technologies and projects because they are in their infancy um, in terms of commercial scaling. Cobalt is, again, an outlier at the other end. It's very constrained in terms of geological occurrence and totally dominated by the Congo. So it's much more of a security issue. It's much more of a fundability issue. It's a, largely a byproduct from cobalt in the Congo and Zambia and nickel in, in Canada and Australia and elsewhere. So there's a whole other range of challenges to scale it as a byproduct of copper and nickel to meet demand. Nickel, likewise, I mean, we're very involved in pioneering new nickel processing processes in the form of a one atmosphere and room temperature heat bleach process that we pioneered in, as Brazilian nickel for the extraction of nickel chemicals for battery manufacturing from a certain type of nickel laterite resource, which we're doing in northern Brazil and building a big nickel cobalt project there. So rare earths, completely different. We're building a rare earth separation plant in Norway together with Norwegian state and Swedish state. And again, that's got a whole other range of challenges with respect to separation technologies and further manufacturing of nickel rare earth powders and alloys for permanent magnet manufacturing. So, so I don't want to kind of drone on about each one of our metals, but they've all got a very different landscape of opportunities and challenges to pioneer new processes to unlock new resources to meaningfully narrow the gap over the next 10 years in the supply-demand dislocation. According to some more information from the International Energy Agency, the rising cost of critical minerals 
has led in recent years to increases in the cost of some clean energy technologies following many years of price declines. And as the technologies themselves become less expensive, the minerals themselves make up a larger part of the overall cost of those technologies. Are these prices going to be detrimental to the pace of the energy transition? I think this is a particularly important question to ask as we're looking for new sources of supply that may not have the built-in volume, existing infrastructure advantages to cost that you would already find, for example, in China with, with the processing of different minerals. No, I think you've put your finger on the key issue that critical mineral supply constraints and pricing will have a massively retarding impact on the energy transition. The fact is that as lithium-ion batteries and other technologies scale in production and configurations and chemistries continue to be refined and to become more efficient and hopefully thrift out some of these less available materials or need a little bit less of them, and as you have greater economies of scale and new manufacturing technologies, those will all be continued to drive down costs to you know, make these units and the cars they go into more competitive and stimulate demand so we accelerate adoption. That's all great. Unfortunately, as you say, the metals going into those systems are going to be, are in structural short supply. Their price will have to go up a lot further and stay up a lot longer, and they will be a much bigger portion of the value of those units over the next one, two, three, five, ten, 10, and 15 years. And overall, the pace of decline in the cost of lithium-ion batteries and electric motors and wind turbines will slow relative to the decline in costs as the industries has evolved over the last 10 years, and in some cases, reverse and become more expensive. So, you know, obviously that has an effect on demand and penetration and the pace of the energy transition, as well as on inflation and on climate change goals. So, you know, it's a very major issue that requires hundreds of billions of dollars and a lot of focus from governments and private sector in order to avoid the worst of the impact of that equation. Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned the amount of time that it takes to develop new mines. And mines are obviously long-term investments. They can take, as you said, 10, maybe even 20 years to fully develop and start to, to earn returns. To what extent might the vacillating climate politics here in the U.S. increase investment risk, make these long-term investments look a little risky, and to what degree might the IRA address some of those concerns? Do you mean a politically uh, driven reversal of commitment to climate change mitigation and the energy transition in the U.S.? Quite possibly, or some variation on that. Yeah, I'm not too worried about that. You know, the global energy transition, the global penetration of electric vehicles to replace diesel and petrol engine vehicles is pretty much unstoppable. It might go quicker or it might go a little bit less quick, um, depending on multiple political, regulatory, economic factors. But it's not going away. And even in a very, very, very downside scenario of global recession and of political backlash in the US and elsewhere that reduces the regulatory support for this transition, there's still very severe structural short supply of these metals. So I'm not worried 
as an investor in lithium projects, nickel mines, and cobalt mines, and tin mines, that I'm going to be investing into an environment where suddenly in five years' time, you know, everybody's back pumping oil and increasing usage of diesel and petrol, and we've taken a bet on the wrong global transformation. I think the risk of that is close to zero. So even if the pace is slowed or fast, there's still going to be demand. Yeah, and demand is still going to continually outstrip supply over the next three, four, five, eight years. The distribution of shortages across critical minerals will obviously vary as technologies evolve, as they will. So some will be in more severe short supply than others because prices will drive innovation and change battery chemistries and configurations. So there's a lot of nuance within the equation, but the overall equation and macro tailwind for our industry is inescapably compelling. To get back to that shortage of supply or to take a little bit further, under the Inflation Reduction Act, EVs that source battery components from foreign entities of concern, most notably being China, will not be eligible for the EV tax credit. And EVs that contain critical minerals from China generally will not qualify for the credit as of 2025. This is really quick. This is a quick time frame that we're looking at. The issue has obviously been all over the news. What is your view on the availability of these minerals to replace Chinese supply, let's say? And, and will there be adequate supply of critical minerals from non-states of concerns within the time frame that we need? It's a massive challenge, and we've got a lot of work to do to try and make that a possibility. It's not inconceivable, but it's really tough. And we as an industry is going to need a lot of support in order to do that. And support not just from Inflation Reduction Act agencies and other elements of the US government ecosystem, who obviously are very powerful and have big budgets and have a big role to play and are very committed, but also from the markets and from institutional providers of funding who up till now have chosen to largely ignore our industry because it's perceived as being high risk from an ESG PR exposure point of view and therefore best left to the Chinese or somebody else. And that's a massive problem. And governments don't only need to de-risk projects by providing funding and protection as, as our RA is, but also need to perhaps incentivize or regulate in some way deployment of capital from big private sector institutions in order for them to play the role they have to play because we need hundreds of billions of dollars over the next five, ten years. And and, and we're being failed not only by the markets, by you know scaling of the industry outside of Chinese players, but we are also being failed by and by big institutions, but also being failed by big global mining companies who have also been largely absent from these critical minerals because they haven't historically been big enough to move the dial for them. And they therefore have been much happier continuing to mine iron or on the Pilbara Australia and ship it to China and pay massive dividends when they should have been redeploying capital with all their expertise and capacity and technical abilities into building more nickel capacity, more lithium capacity, more cobalt capacity, more rare earth capacity, more tin capacity. And they largely haven't been. Given the, the volume of all these metals that are going to be needed in the future, the, the concepts of the circular economy seem to be really important. We're going to need to recycle some of these resources going down the line. And recycling has emerged as an alternative to displace 
some portion of newly mined material, although the volumes, I believe, at this point are, are pretty low. You have a company, uh, the TechMeth is invested in Rainbowware Earths, which is in South Africa, that focuses on recycling. Can you tell us what potential is there for recycling at this point and how big might it be? There are two sides to it in the context of the TechMeth portfolio. One is waste treatment for critical minerals. And we've got two plants in Arkansas and U.S. vanadium taking industrial waste and producing high-purity vanadium chemicals, including the electrolyte for vanadium redox flow batteries, which needs to be one of the winners in the grid-scale fixed battery storage development. And as you mentioned, Rainbow Rare Earth is preparing, and we're preparing to build a big dump treatment for rare earth oxides project in South Africa from the waste material from historical phosphate mining. So that's waste treatment. Recycling, we, we were the primary funders of Lifecycle, which we listed on the New York Stock Exchange and then exited from about a year ago. Um, and they're now the biggest lithium-ion battery recycling company in North America. And we're now investing in a next-generation lithium-ion battery recycling technology company, Momentum Technologies in Texas, and building our first plant in Ohio. And that's a very important part of the ecosystem. Lithium-ion batteries, firstly, you know, do get damaged and do are defective and do reach the end of their lives. And environmentally, they have to be dealt with, and you have to deal with them in a way that captures value to reduce the cost of new ones. And you have to recover the metals in them in order to feed the production of new batteries without having to go to Chinese sources or go to new mined materials. And that's happening with Lifecycle, Redwood and other incumbents and what we're building um, as a much lower capex, more modulus membrane-based solution in momentum in Texas and Ohio. And it is important, but it's not the answer. You know, if we were to fully develop the recycling ecosystem in the US over the next 10 years, maybe we could supply 20% of the battery metals going into new manufacturing, which is material, but it doesn't replace needing to have a lot more mines and a lot more primary processing. So the fact is that much critical mineral mining will continue to take place outside of the U.S., and a couple of years ago, this podcast had an episode on the supply of cobalt, which you've already mentioned, from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And the, the episode focused on the detrimental human and environmental impacts of uh, resource development in that country. To what extent are there global protocols to manage these environmental and social impacts? Again, understanding that regardless of how quickly supply chains can be developed in the U.S. and amongst other countries, certain resources such as cobalt are going to be coming from, from countries that have a lot of challenges. There are a lot of protocols and standards that we apply to ourselves at TechMed and all of our projects, and the DFC is a government development funding agency, obviously oversees that, and we follow all of their guidelines. And it's a mistake to think that mining is fundamentally offensive. It can be well-governed, it can be low-impact environmentally, and it can be very constructive from a social and political and community interface point of view. And it has to be, you know, in terms of how our industry needs to evolve and transform to play our role in the energy transition. Um, a country like the Congo is a complicated country with a complicated history and 
it's never going to be a simple environment in which to ensure high ESG standards. However, a number of the players there are doing so, and there are a lot of frameworks and standards that players in the industry adhere to, which are being applied. So to tarnish the Congo with a uniform brush of a lack of acceptable governance and standards is wrong. Unfortunately, the Congo is dominated by Chinese interests who do not hold themselves to as high standards as we do. But there are other players who do. The element of Chinese cobalt production that comes from artisanal informal sector production, which is particularly difficult to regulate and particularly difficult to be confident of the transparency of with respect to issues of environmental impact or child labor or other problems that we don't want to pollute our supply chains. It is small, you know, it's 10% of the Congolese production, you know, which is probably means it's six or seven percent of global production. So it's a big issue. It needs to be dealt with. In a way, it's, you know, I'm, I know I'm unpopular for saying this, but it's a bit of a distraction. We need to deal with it, but we don't need to focus on it like that's what the industry is. It's a little corner of the industry that we need to deal with and minimize the negative impact of. Let me ask you a final question here. The IRA has gone a long way towards incentivizing critical mineral supply chain development in this country through tax incentives. But what policies would you like to see going forward to additionally promote and accelerate the development of the critical mineral supply chain within the United States as well as amongst its trade allies? I think what we need is more of what we're getting. We need the RA to be implemented efficiently and effectively, and a lot of the jury somewhat out with respect to effective and efficient regulations and implementation. Um, we need to further empower both budgetarily and in terms of latitude to work outside of the U.S. as well as inside of the U.S. programs such as the, the, the DOE loan program, which is very material and doing great work but needs to do a lot more on a much wider landscape. What the DOD is doing through the DLA and the DPA and Title III is very important, needs to be scaled so all of the things that are going on need to be done quicker and bigger. So that's the one side of it. But it's, it's, it's possibly even with that happening is not enough because we should have been doing what we're doing now five years ago. So we need to be very imaginative to really move the dial and, and fill or narrow this gap. And therefore, we do need innovative additional measures that government has to engage in in order to make even more of a difference than they're starting to do already. And 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 in my view, that the one area that hasn't been dealt with at all is how one incentivizes or encourages or enforces large private sector institutional pools of capital to engage in responsible projects in these critical mineral supply chains that we all need for US security, US industrial competitiveness and jobs, and to play our role in mitigating climate change globally. So somehow these institutions need to be encouraged or forced to contribute to the hundreds of billions of dollars that we need as an industry to do our job. Brian, thank you for talking. Great, Andy. No, it was a great pleasure. Today's guest has been Brian Manel, Chief Executive Officer of TechMet. 
Check out the Climate Center for Energy Policy website for our archive of more than 150 podcast episodes, as well as research in upcoming in-person and virtual events. To keep up with the center, subscribe to our monthly newsletter on our website. Our address is kleinmanenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. Thank you.